Father in heaven, um, I do pray that what will catch our attention most this morning, that will grip us, is that we read from and think from and are transformed through the very word of God. Uh, I pray that not go past our notice, but rather, Father, it will draw us to you. So please enable us, as we have been, to be engaged, to, to listen, to think, to believe, to worship. This I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Turn please to First Peter and chapter 1. First Peter chapter 1, please. I want to read, uh, beginning with verse 22, and, and, and I think I'll go all the way through verse 12 of chapter 2. I won't get that far, obviously, but just want to lay it all out so you can see that. So, 1 Peter, please, and chapter 1, verse 22. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth, for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart, since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God. For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers, the flowers fall, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. So, put away all malice, and all deceit, and hypocrisy, and envy, and all slander. Like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation. If indeed you've tasted that the Lord is good. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood. To offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in scripture. Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious. And whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe. But for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. And a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumbled because they disobeyed the word as they were destined to do. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. That you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh with which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Now, I don't su suspect it's a surprise when in church we read in the Bible. Well, yeah, I hope it's no surprise that when in church we read in the Bible. But I trust it's no surprise that when in church we read in the Bible that we're to love 
one another. I think you would think that's rather ho-hum. I've heard that before. That, that, that we're to love as Christians and most particularly we're to love, we're to love one another. I mean, really, as we read through the scripture, we know that God is love. That's what John writes to us in his first epistle. John is love. I mean, God is love. John writes that. And and then we know this too, that the great commandment and the one that is like it, both these are about love. That we're to love God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And we're to love our neighbor as ourselves. One flows, if you will. The second from the first. And Jesus said all of the law really can be summed up in these two commandments. And we do see that. The first four of the ten commandments, if you will, deal with our loving of God. And then five through ten, our loving of one another. Jesus was very particular when he said that we're to love one another. Believers are to love one another as he has loved us. He called it a new commandment. Now the commandment wasn't particularly new that we're to love one another, but the quality of it, the way it's to be uh, implemented, the, the standard for it, that we're to love one another as he has loved us, is really the newness of that commandment. So important is that commandment to us. Jesus said that it was by our loving one another as he's loved us, that people will know that we belong to him, meaning that they should see in the way that we love one another, we should actually see Jesus in the way that he loves. And so they should say, well, they must belong to Jesus because they love the way he does. Love. Important. We could spend the rest of the morning going passage by passage throughout the scripture concerning how we're to, to love. And that really uh, resonates with us, doesn't it? That we're to love. Uh, So much so that that many have just simply said, we could sum up the Christian faith and really all other religions into this one word love. That's really all we need. That's really all they teach. They can all be sort of merged together or ignored, if you will. If we can just take this one notion that we can love each other. That's really it, isn't it? And, and again, that resonates with us. We do have this desire to be loved. And there's something in us that says we are to love. In fact, we can suppress each of those in various ways. The desire to be loved or even knowing that we ought to love. But the truth of the matter is, when either is neglected, When we find ourselves not loved and we find ourselves not loving, it's always bad. And so there's something about this. We say, yes, that's true. But but I would make this statement as well, that we can't just disregard that which is true in the Christian faith. And we can't just simply merge it with others because there's a unique aspect to this love that's necessary for us and only in this faith that we call Christian. The first this, that Jesus is the perfect model of what love really is. He really is the perfect model of what love really is, you see. And we're to love like, like, like that. And his humility and self-sacrifice. 
For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. Jesus, the very manifestation of the love of God. God demonstrates his own love in this, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Jesus Death is the example, the model of, 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 of really the very love of God. This is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and gave his son as a, an atoning sacrifice, a propitiation for our sins. That's, that's what love really looks like, you see. It's that kind of humble love, that kind of love that we see pictured in, in Jesus when on the night that he was betrayed and was with his disciples, stripped himself down and took on the very form of a servant, humbled himself like that and washed his disciples' feet. And, and I, I see that example of love and I think, oh yeah, I love like that. Hmm. And then he gives himself for his enemies. That kind of, that kind of love. And I think if that's what love really is, no wonder the world is the way that it is. If that's the way love really is, no wonder I'm the way I really am. But you know, there's something else about this love of Jesus. It's a model, that's for sure. It shows what love really is, but it's more than that. It's more than simply a model, because you see, as a model, it's not all that helpful. It is rather convicting. It is rather unattainable. I look at that and I'm convicted and, and I realize I, I don't love like that. But there's more to this love of God expressed in Jesus. There's more in this love of Jesus for us. Because you see, when Jesus loved, in fact, I would say what made his love so loving, is he actually accomplished something by loving us. He actually did that which was best for us. He did something. He just didn't show us something. He did something. He loved us. And in his humility and his his death and his resurrection, his, his love secured for us reconciliation with God. It did. That was most, what, what is most necessary for us and what we can't do for ourselves. He loved us like that. He did for us that which is necessary for us. He reconciled us to God. And you know this. This is, this is the essence of the gospel, really. He, he did that for us. Because we couldn't. Because if we had paid for our own sins, we'd still be paying. But he could pay for our sins, for he had none. He could complete the task. And triumph over sin and death. By way of his resurrection. You see, the problem with us. The problem with me. Is, is the same problem that existed when Adam and Eve sinned in the Garden of Eden. That's what I inherited. That's what came to me as a human being when Adam and Eve tried to, at least in their own minds, unseat, supplant, replace God with themselves. And in so doing, then they relied upon who they were to simply love apart from God, and they thus had no love of God, really, in them. And so, their love, our love, my love, always falls short. But Jesus came, you see. And though they, we, I, had rebelled, 
against this one who had made us and gave to us his glory. And Jesus came and died for us that we might be reconciled to God. Why? What was the purpose of all of that? What would that lead to eventually? Notice how Peter puts it in verse 22. He says, having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love. Now this expression, having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth, can be taken two ways. If I were smarter, I would know which way to take it. But since I'm not, I take it both ways. All right? So here's a, think about this. One way to take it, and by the way, when I say to take it, I'm saying I could list a list of books and bits of commentators and preachers who, who have dealt with this and they'll take it this way and then another group that'll take it this way and we like all these people right on both sides so uh, for me to choose that I'd have to be smarter than those on both sides or choose one friend over another and so I just you know me I just take it both ways one way to take this is to take this expression obedience uh, to the truth as one's conversion and, and, uh, and we can do that because the Bible does. For instance, in John in chapter 6, in verse 29, from the lips of, of Jesus, he says this. Let me begin reading with verse 25, give you the whole story here. He says, when they, that is, the disciples of Jesus, found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say to you, You're seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Jesus had just fed them all and thousands others. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him God the Father has set his seal. Then they said to him, what must we do to be doing the works of God? Jesus answered them, this is the work of God. That you believe in him whom he has sent. So you see there's a sense in which our obedience to the truth is initially found in our faith. We believe him. It's stated I think perhaps maybe even more clearly in John's first epistle. John chapter 3 verse 23. The beginning of this verse. John writes and this is the commandment. That we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ. This is a commandment. We often lay out the gospel as an invitation. I appreciate that. Call it an invitation if we'd like. But the truth of the matter is, the gospel is first news. It's a proclamation. It's news of an event. News of something that's happened. And it's such awesome news we call it good news gospel good news and it's news that is given to be believed so it isn't simply an invitation i want to invite you into no 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 it's a command this is true and it's from god and so obedience to the truth first and foremost 
is that takes place when we believe takes place at our conversion. All right. And so when that occurs, as Peter puts it, there's a purification. And so he puts it in the in, in very personally having purified or cleansed your souls by your obedience to the truth. Wash me and I will be clean. Purge me with hyssop. And I will be whiter than snow. All of that. So there's this purifying that takes place. Or it could be taken uh, in, 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 a, in, in a sense. Sort of as we've been talking through First Peter. That we're to be holy. That is to live out our lives in holiness. As God is holy. And that is to live a life of increasing holiness. Purifying. A process of being purified and how does that take place how are we increasingly purified well we could say that a variety of ways if we wanted we could invoke the presence of the holy spirit in his work in us or we could say simply obey and that's how peter puts it now either way the intention the intended result the purpose is the same notice he says having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love. He's saying, when we've been reconciled to God, and as we're working that out in the course of our lives, the purpose of that, at least a purpose of that, it's a primary purpose of that, is that we love each other. You see, we moved away from love to God in our sin. And thus we moved away from love to one another when we were distanced from God. And our hearts turned against him. And now he said, that's been changed. Something's happened because of the work of Christ, you see. Something's happened. And, and the purpose of that happening or what the end result of that happening is that now I'm going to command you. Notice how he puts it. Love one another earnestly from a pure heart. This is the reason for that. For a sincere that is honest... Really seeking the best of the other. Brotherly family. God is our father. Love. So then love one another earnestly. That sense of earnestness. One of my favorites for me. Expressions in all the Bible. I must say. Uh, it, it, it stops me every time I read it. I read it probably three times a year. At least just in my Reading because of where it is in the scripture. But that little expression concerning Jesus. On the night that he was betrayed. That he earnestly desired. He said. I earnestly desire to eat this Passover meal with you. Now that stops me for a number of reasons. None of which are particularly relevant here. But the point is. That expression of earnest. For Jesus he meant. There's nothing else I want to do tonight my focus of attention right now he says is to be with you he's earnest about that and so now you see for to earnestly love one another he means this is to be the focus of our, of our attention there isn't anything we'd rather do than that which is best for the other there isn't anything we'd rather do. We're earnest about it. 
It's top, if you will, on our list. That's what we desire. So he says, love one another earnestly. Right? Don't hum this. None of us are that good at this. All right? All right? So he says, but, but, but I want to grab you for a minute. Earnestly love one another from a pure heart that is not for your own gain, but to really, to really love them, you see. That's it. Now, love is a complicated thing, isn't it? Much has been written about love, songs and books and poems and movies made. Let's, you know, love makes the proverbial world go round. C.S. Lewis wrote a book on love called Four Loves, which is fascinating and helpful. He says we can kind of delineate love by particular Greek words or others in, in, in language. And, and, and we, can, we can maybe shake it out like this. That there's a certain natural bond between people. That's love, a certain natural affection like a parent for a child. And then that binds together. There's, there's a natural kind of affection that simply flows out of that. There's a friendship kind of love. A kind of love that's, that's shared around a mutual interest. And so we have a mutual interest and we find ourselves liking this thing over here. Finding ourselves together. And that mutual interest binds us together. And so we care about each other. At least in the context as we share life around this mutual interest. There's this kind of love or perhaps we can kind of soften that a bit and a romantic kind of love that's a love that, that's love that loves because you're attracted to the other and there's something in the other you desire to possess to have for yourself because of the, the joy and the satisfaction that that gives you that that attraction from the other person but then he says there's this love which he calls charity older language if you will older word charity and he says, this is God's kind of love. It's this kind of love that simply loves. Oh, it can be part of, a, of, a, of, a, of an affectionate kind of love, a natural love. It can be part of, of a friendship kind of love. It can be part of a romantic kind of love, this kind of love. But, but really what distinguishes it from all the others is that it isn't dependent upon the attractiveness, the lovability lovableness let's put it like that that's a bad word too probably not a word but lovableness of the other person is nothing in them that's compelling the love it's just simply coming from you because you're loving it's it's displayed i think best i could put it that way in jesus parable of the good samaritan that is as fascinating an interchange i think as you can possibly have Lawyer comes to Jesus, you remember. Says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus said, what does the law say? And, and, and he recites to, to love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And to love our neighbor as ourselves. And Jesus says, you've spoken well, do that and you'll live. So reading through that passage in, in Luke's gospel, I think, well, we're probably done with this. But then the lawyer, not well trained in law school, asking one too many questions. The lawyer, parenthetically, insights into all of us to justify himself, asks Jesus, who is my neighbor? 
Jesus tells this story. You remember, man on the Jericho road, not a great word, probably unwise to be on it, road, uh, unwise to be on it, but he was on it nonetheless, and so he's attacked by robbers and beaten, and all his money's taken. There he is lying on the road, and Jesus, a priest, says a priest comes by, goes past the other way, a Levite goes by, passes the other way, and then he says, a Samaritan. <laughs> all of a sudden, this lawyer, probably, if he's Jewish, feels hatred well up within him. Just by mention of Samaritan, Jesus would know that. Samaritan comes by. And you know the story. The Samaritan binds up his wounds, pours oil on the guy, uh, goes and, and, uh, and takes him to a hotel and stays with him that night and takes care of him the next day. He has to leave to go on his business. And so he gives money to the innkeeper, says, take care of him. And if, if, if it goes over what I've given you, then that's fine. Charge it to my account. And then Jesus asked the wrong question. Or at least he doesn't answer the question that was asked to him. The question to him is, who's the neighbor that is whom I to love? Who's my neighbor? And Jesus says, well, who was the neighbor? That is, who loved. That's the point of it, you see. This is the point of it, is that we're to be people who love and not to be concerned about the one loving so much other than they have a need and we can meet it. And so we come to them to help them. And Jesus, I want you to be this kind of person, this kind of person who loves. That's God's kind of love. D.A. Carson, theologian from Chicago, puts it like this. He says, if I must say in a few words what's distinctive about God's love for us, it's that it is self-originating. Think about that. God's love is self-originating. It comes out of himself. When a young man reveals his heart with a passionate declaration, I love you, at least in part he means that he finds the woman he loves lovely. At least some of his love is elicited by the object of that love. But God loves what is unlovely. If, as John 3.16 tells us, God loves the world... It's not because the world is so lovely, God cannot help himself. Judging by God's use of the term world, God loves the world only because of what he is. That is, we then Christians must learn love. Christians learn to love with love that is, like God's love, self-originating. Of course, unlike God's love, Ours is not absolutely self-originating, but it is self-originating in the sense that God's grace so transforms the believer that his or her responses of love emerge out of the matrix of Christian character and are correspondingly less dependent on the loveliness of the object. Did you get that? I mean, God's love self-originating comes from himself. He loves us not because we're particularly worthy of his love, in fact, we're enemies of him, we're, we're rebels, we've dishonored him in, in the worst possible ways. I mean, when we read through the prophet Hosea, we're aghast of the marriage of this holy man, this prophet and this prostitute. And we think so poorly of her. How could she do this to him? 
as he buys her back and all of those things. And then when we sit back and we ask, who am I in this story? It's not Hosea. He loved her not because of her loveliness. She did everything she possibly could to embarrass him, to despise him, to dishonor him. And yet still, he loved her. And that's it, you see. And I'm just aghast at that. Not only that I've been loved like that, but now I'm to love like that. And we speak of this brotherly love, you know. It, it sounds rather nice. Brotherly love, love your brothers. But you know, sometimes it's harder to love those really in your own family than those outside your own family. I mean, sometimes we go to the office, you know, or go to the grocery store, go where we go, go to work, uh, around people. And uh, we can treat them very nicely. We can forgive all kinds of things. We can be patient with them. We can, And you get home, and all of that seems to go out the window. I mean, around our dinner table, sometimes at night when the kids were little, I would say, could you treat each other like total strangers? You know, I think that would go better than how it is that we're treating each other in this family. Uh, because there's something about that. We all know that. We all know that we can hold it together there at times. And then there's all kinds of reasons for that. Self-interest reasons and pride and, and uh, our jobs or whatever it happens to be. There, there's things that constrain us that enable us to do that. But I think in the context of families and sometimes in the context of church, this brotherly love can be a difficult thing. It can be difficult because we care so much about what the other thinks of us. And so we can be very sensitive. You know, in a family, a husband can say something to a wife that perhaps he could say elsewhere and it wouldn't be taken with such offense. But it is, why? Because she cares so much what he thinks of her. Or a father to children or children to parents. Because we care so much. It just means more. So we're more sensitive. We're more alert. We're more thinking, what does he mean by that? What does she mean by that? And so that can be true. That can be true in the life of the church as well. We care more because we're together as believers. So we care. What's he think of me? What's she think of me? What? And so we can be sensitive more perhaps to that. More easily perhaps hurt and more easily hurt. Brotherly love, it's not an easy thing. And sometimes in family life we have higher expectations than we do of, of others. You know, outside of the faith, if a person's an unbeliever, we don't expect what we expect of believers. And so in the context of church life, sometimes we forget that we're simply sinners saved by grace. And we're on this road of this journey of being sanctified and made holy and purified and all of that. But still, you know, we can be just as dishonest and just as immoral and just as whatever as unbelievers. Because that's still being worked out of us in various ways. Of course, the short-sightedness aspect of that is... That we think that we never offend. <laughs> it's just everybody else offends us. But you see, it's difficult, this brotherly love. With such tight quarters, envy can be rampant. 
especially, I would say, in the life of the church. Because you see, what happens is people think, well, I live a faithful life. I go to Bible study. I pray. I go to church. I give money. I do this. I do that. And yet, why is it? Why is it that I don't have a job right now? And they do. Why is it that I don't have a happy marriage, but they do? Why is it? That they have children, but I don't. Why is it that they have friends and a ministry in this, and I don't? I... And you see, we can find ourselves in the midst of that as well in family life. So, and Peter says that all of this is for a brotherly love. He knows what he's talking about. He knows that this isn't an easy thing. He knows that this might be more difficult. Because you see, not only do we have all of that, but but really we're very different as the church comes together. Peter would know that Jews and Gentiles together in the same church. How can that be? You remember Peter, he's the one who was so Jewish in his understanding even of Christianity in the beginning that it took a vision from God before he would even think to go and share the gospel with a Gentile, even though he had heard Jesus say, go into all the world and make disciples of all nations. It never registered for him that that would include Gentiles, right? And so he knows these brothers with these Gentiles. In fact, Peter had a difficult time with that. If you read Galatians in chapter 2, when Paul writes to that church, he says, by the way, you remember Peter, he was doing fine until these Jewish believers came and then he left the Gentiles and only sat and ate with these Jewish ones. It's still difficult. Brotherly love. You know, we're different by temperament. We're different by personality. We're different by age. We're different by family background. We're different by giftedness. I mean, throw a prophetic gifted person with a mercy gifted person and sparks fly, right? This just happens. Throw a teacher-gifted person with a helper-gifted person, and there's difficulties because one wants to talk about it and one wants to do it, right? And we find ourselves in those kinds of combinations all the time. Or I'm, I'm, I'm bent to this ministry. I can't see why everybody else doesn't see this. This is it. This is the whole deal. We don't do this. We might as well do nothing. And someone else says, no, it's this. And so, even by God's design, he gives us differently. And then he says, love each other. I mean, it isn't just a numerical coincidence that 1 Corinthians 13 comes between 12 and 14. Why? Because 12 says we're different by God's design. He's made us different. He's gifted us different. And thus our wiring spiritually is different from one another. And then in chapter 13, he says, well, that's just true. Here's how you get along. Love each other. This is the excellent way, you see. And that's how we're to be. We're to love one another like that. In the context of family. So this. Do we have any hope? Oh, do we have any hope at all that this is true? And the answer, of course, is yes. Why is that? Verse 23 says, Since, because, you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, to the living and abiding word of God. For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers, and the flower fails, or falls. But the word of the Lord 
remains forever. He says, yes, here's your hope. You're different than you were. You really are. You've been born again. You've been reconciled to God. The very love of God has been manifested to you in Jesus. Has worked in you through Jesus. And now lives in you. The very word of God. Now, even as I say that, I have to pinch myself. I want to say, really? Did you see me yesterday? Right? Really? No. Don't forget that. There is hope. Yes, we're to love brothers and sisters. We're to love the way that God loves. We're to love because we are those who love. And we are those who love because... The love of God has been shed abroad, Romans 5, in our hearts through the Holy Spirit. He lives in us. And he says that this born-again-ness has occurred because an imperishable seed has been planted in us. Not a perishable one so that it died away, but an imperishable one. This is really true. It can't perish. It's living. It's alive. Uh, this passage in Hebrews, in chapter 4, that, that we know. In verse 12, for the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, And discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. No creature is hidden from its sight. But all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him. To whom we must give an account. This very word of God is in us. It's alive. It has eyes. Right? And he can see everything inside us. And he can see that which is true of the word of God. And the seed in us, this imperishable seed, this living, enduring word of God, it will stay forever. Nothing can destroy it. It's there within us. And it's exposing everything in us that's unloving. And producing in us everything that is. I've looked at this passage before very quickly in Ephesians and chapter 3. But I think helpful it is. The apostle writes. For this reason I bow my knee before the father. From whom every family in heaven and earth is named. That according to the riches of his glory. He might grant you to be strengthened with power. Through his spirit in your inner being. So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. We've mentioned before. That word for dwell. Doesn't simply mean that Christ lives in you. Oh he does. But Paul's trying to make a point. And his point is, well, he uses this particular word, it means take up residence, to live there permanently. Now you see, if someone comes to visit, they don't usually rearrange the furniture. But when someone buys the house, they may well remodel. And in their remodeling, what they'll do is they'll remodel the house in a way that resembles who they are. You walk into our house, and if you know my wife, you'll say, Karen lives here. 
If you go in the basement and see my office, you'll see Bill lives here. Because it reflects her. It really does. As well it should. And it reflects her, you see. And so our hearts, because Jesus lives there, are in process of being remodeled. And so he's taking out everything that doesn't resemble him. And he's putting in its place everything that does. So that it can be home permanently to him. Because he's living and he's enduring. And he's the very word of God. So that's what's happening in us. And I say that because sometimes we live in the midst of a spiritual fatalism. That is to say, we think it's always going to be like this. It's never going to change. And sometimes we feel that way because we do get in ruts, plateaus, high or low, that seem to last a long time. But we mustn't ever think, and this is what it means to live by faith, we mustn't ever think that God isn't at work during those times. Some work takes more excavation. Some work takes more time. If you've ever worked with a contractor, the famous words is, well, if you want me to do this right, it's going to take longer. And if we want God to do this right, it may take a while, a decade. Longer? I don't know. I'm still after it. It takes longer than my 62 years. And so you see, He's at work in us. He really is. And you may find that a bit unbelievable as you look into your own life. But you see, Peter uses an illustration that would fit, that did, of course, fit perfectly. He quotes the prophet Isaiah. And he quotes the prophet Isaiah about the word of God. And he quotes the prophet Isaiah from Isaiah chapter 40. Now, he had just said at the end of chapter 39 in Isaiah... That a day would come when Israel would be exiled to Babylon. Now, when he first wrote that, people might have just yawned and said, well, it hasn't happened yet. In fact, that was Hezekiah's response. Hezekiah was the king. And he got that word and he said, well, that's all right. I'll be dead by then. But when those exiles in Babylon would read the prophet Isaiah... They would know that to be true. But then in chapter 40 is the promise of restoration. And my suspicion is that in the first decade or second decade or third decade or fourth decade or fifth decade of that exile, they might wonder, is this really true? And so Isaiah said to them, All all flesh is like grass and its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers, the flower falls, but I've spoken it. The word of the Lord stands forever. It's living and enduring. It will accomplish its purpose. Because you see, the word of God is powerful. Genesis 1, God speaks. What happens? Everything. In our lives, God spoke. What happened? We were born again. In fact, Paul puts it like this in 2 Corinthians. 
and chapter 4. In verse 4, he says, In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God, who said, let, there, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. You see, that same creative word at creation that brought light is the same word of God that brings light that enables us to see and believe because it brings new life. If God's word is true, love one another from a pure heart because that's who he's made you, who he's making you to be. So finally, Peter says, all right, so put away everything that isn't loving. He makes a list. He could make a longer list, a different list. I suppose this was the list that the Spirit gave him. Malice, deceit, hypocrisy, envy, slander, all those things contrary to love. But then this, like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation. He says, listen, this pure spiritual milk, this isn't a put down. He's not saying they're babies. He's saying, use this illustration. What do babies crave? Milk. Why? Because they'll die without it. And there's something in them that knows that. So they make moms miserable till they get it, right? It's, it's simply that they crave it. They must have it. He says the same is true for the word of God. Crave it. And you say, well, what would keep me craving it? And he says this. If, you could also translate that, I think, better. For you've tasted that the Lord is good. God is so confidence in who he is. And he can use that metaphor and say, taste me, right? Get a little. Know who I am. You've already tasted this. I've already shown you. You've already given you new life. You've been born again. That's really true. Why do you think I'll stop now? Why do you think that what's to come isn't built on this and better? Well, why stop? You really can. And so by faith, not by your own effort, by faith, trusting in the truth that you've been born again, read the word of God, say, yes, I'm to love and to love like this. Yes, I'm to put off all of that isn't loving. By faith, do that. And you say, well, I get, I get, that's a struggle for me. And, and I think God would say, I know. It's never easy. But don't be discouraged. Because you've been born again with an imperishable seed. It's the living and enduring word of God. Everything else will fade. Everything else will fall. But my word won't. And this is the word that was preached to you. Let's pray. Father, I pray for me, for us, that we believe this. And that we would really love one another. God, I suspect, as with me, going through our minds right now, are people we find very annoying, very difficult to love. In fact, Father, they may really have hurt us. In fact, there may not be much in them at all to really love. But yet, 
You've saved them just like you did me and just like you did us. We realize we were saved by grace through faith. We weren't lovable. And so I pray, God, that you would convince us that you've given us new life. Your spirit within us. That we really can love them. And so I pray, Father, for me, for us, that we have set apart, set aside everything, put off everything that is unloving. Whether it's malice and deceit and hypocrisy and slander or impatience or unkindness or whatever it is. We can put that aside and put that off. And to put on all that is love like compassion and humility and gentleness and kindness and patience that we can forgive as you God in Christ Jesus have forgiven us. May we be that kind of people to really love, to really care, to really do that which is best for the other. And may God we be so known by that that people would see Jesus and not only know that we belong to him but know that he is indeed the very Messiah from God and that they too then would put their trust, their faith, their faith in him. Father, we pray even now for those of brothers and sisters who are having difficulty for Carol Nye on the loss of her mom, we pray for her that we'd be a help to her that spirit you would be in her and with her. And Father, for others who find themselves with illness and disease or in a period of decline, we pray that you would strengthen and help. And Father, we pray for those who find relationships tough at the moment, they're strained, that you would give grace, that you would help and that we would help as well. We find those in need of variousness sundry ways, whether it be physical, material, whether it be spiritual, emotional, that we, God, would be used by you to help. I pray that none of us could turn away and go to the other side, but rather welling up within us is simply love, love, the very love of God for one another. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please stand for the benediction. Number of benedictions flying through my head. This one at the moment because I must say that in thinking of my own born againness and my own call to love as Christ has loved me, I wonder, can that ever be? So perhaps this one will be the blessing of God upon us. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than we could ever ask or imagine through his power that is at work within us to be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus both now and forevermore. And together let us sing.